0: Hello everybody, welcome back to the You Betcha podcast. This is your host Keith Carlson. We come to you again from the undisclosed location in Minnesota. And today I wish to speak with you and share some stories about the old Metropolitan Stadium located in Bloomington, Minnesota. I did grow up in this area in the 70s and frequented the stadium for a number of events. Uh, He was uh, involved in attending many Minnesota Twins ball games back in 1975 and early 1976. It was common for my brothers and I along with a few other friends to sneak through the turnstall gate at gate h of the metropolitan stadium the gate h was located in the area of the stadium near the left field general admission area and it was a gate that was very easy for our skinny bodies to slide through and after Gaining entrance to the stadium we would then run underneath the left field stands and Enjoy the game. We enjoyed many summer afternoons hanging out watching the twins play and it was during this time that An employee of the Minnesota Twins ball club approached myself and one of my brothers, and knowing that we had spent many hours at the stadium, asked us if we wanted to be official ball shaggers. Not knowing what a ball shagger was, I asked if he could explain what we would have to do, and at this time, the employee said that we would be welcomed into every home game several hours before the game would start and that we would just have to shag or fetch all the foul balls that were hit into the stands before the gates were opened, and that the balls would then have to be thrown back onto the field. My brother and I uh, thought this would be a good deal, so in early 1976, we were given an identification, identifying us as official ball shaggers for the Minnesota Twins. We enjoyed many games as ball shackers, and it was later in the season of 1976 that I was hanging out near the tunnel to the dugout, which was a common area where the ball players would go from the field to the clubhouse. They would have to walk across the concession tunnel to get from either the clubhouse to the dugout or vice versa at this location we got to know several ball players as well as other clubhouse staff and it was in september of 1976 that ray crump approached me and asked me if i wanted to be a bat boy I looked at him confused and yet excited about that opportunity. And what I learned was that one of the current bat boys had a broken leg and that they would need some assistance working a series with the Kansas City Royals and the Oakland Athletics. It was September 10th, 11th, 12th, and a doubleheader on the 14th of September 1976. It was during that time that I was introduced to the Batboy staff and I assisted during that weekend stint with the Batboy crew in 1976. After assisting in the clubhouse during that time, I was asked if I would be interested in returning as a Batboy in 1977. I explained to Mr. Crump that I would be more than happy to and that I had a twin brother as well. I was advised that the twins would need a whole new Bat Boy staff in 1977 because the current staff was going to be leaving due to age and that a transition was needed. I assured Mr. Crump that I'd be able to get two additional people to help me and that we would be able to take care of all the bad boy responsibilities in 1977. Mr. Crump stated that he would contact me in the early spring of 1977 to confirm additional follow-up dates and employment. Needless to say, it was a long winter. However, I did receive a phone call from Mr. Crump in February of 77 confirming the transition into the Bat Boy crew. It was determined that following spring training at Tinker Field in Orlando, Florida, that myself, along with my brother Kent, and another friend would meet Mr. Crump at the clubhouse and learn our position before the ball club actually arrived to start the 77 season. In March of 77, we were given an orientation, again, of the clubhouse. The setup was similar to what I remembered from my stint in 1976 with the Kansas City Royals and the Oakland Athletics. We were shown our lockers, which we're in the northwest corner of the clubhouse, and we learned that the lockers that we were assigned to use were right between two ball players who we later met and got to know just because of our locker location. The ball players were identified as. Tom Johnson, number 21, who was a relief pitcher with the Twins for approximately five years, and, of course, Larry Heisel. The 1977 Twins season actually started on the West Coast. The Twins played Oakland and Seattle after breaking up their spring training from Tinker Field in Orlando. After their West Coast stint, they then traveled back to Minnesota and actually started that season at home on April fifteenth, 1977. Larry Heisel, all I can say is he's a stand-up kind of guy, good character, very humble, and it was nice uh, hanging out near his locker and getting to know him well. I got to meet a lot of ball players during my tenure with the Twins as Bat Boy, and uh, one of Larry's favorite friends, who I got to know real well, as well was Lyman, Lyman Bostock. Lyman was an outfielder for the Twins, and Lyman and Larry would hang out by. Larry's locker often, and Lyman was, I'd consider a jokester. He liked to laugh and just have a good time. He would comment towards the bad boys about wanting to wrestle us and just playing around. It was nice to engage with Lyman. Lyman and Larry in this manner. They were very respectful and nice guys. It should be noted at this point I was approximately 16 years of age and Lyman was approximately 26 and Larry was approximately 30. They served as mentors to me and I enjoyed knowing them as individuals, and later learned that they were very good ball players. I learned that Larry had his best season in 1977. He was an American League All-Star, and he led the American League with RBIs with 119. Larry had a three hundred two batting average, he hit 28 home runs, and again, led the American League with 119 RBIs. This was the guy sitting next to me in his locker, getting dressed every day before a baseball game. Additionally, learning that in 1978, Larry was not going to return to the team, that he benefited from Milwaukee approaching him as the first free agency draft individual that the Milwaukee Brewers established and Larry was able to go from a $47,200 a year salary with the twins to sign a six-year, $6 million salary with the Brewers when he left the Twins in 1978. I also learned that Larry happened to be the very first Major League Baseball designated hitter. That happened when he was playing on March 6, 1973 in spring training. Recently, I checked on Larry, and I wasn't surprised at all to learn that he is head of the Milwaukee Brewer Youth Organization and outreach program for Milwaukee youth. That doesn't surprise me based on Larry's interaction with myself and my brother during our time that we shared with him in 1977 when he was with the twins. Also, Lyman Bostock, number 10. Lyman also was just another guy, someone hanging out with Larry and I got to know him as a friend and again as a 16 year old you don't really think too much about other people other than you know what they're doing at, at that particular time and and how they act and um, I later learned that Lyman was also a very good baseball player and I'd like to share with you a little bit about his career Lyman was an outfielder with the Twins he was with them from 1975 to 1977 again Lyman Used to hang out with Larry a lot, and he was just a jokester. He got along with everybody, and I just remember him being very positive in the clubhouse, and he was a great competitor. Lyman seemed to enjoy life a lot, and he was respectful to me. And I was just a bad boy working as higher help. Lyman was getting paid $20,000 a year in 1977 and he also benefited from the free agency. Lyman was talking a lot about possibly moving on in 1977. It was interesting to wait and see what really was going to happen after the 77 season. I learned that the Twins were interested in keeping Lyman, but we do know that the Twins have a track record of being cheap and really not a serious player. The Padres, the Yankees, and the California Angels were all interested in the up-and-coming left-handed outfielder. Lyman did leave Minnesota in 77 and went to play with the California Angels in 1978. He signed a $2.3 million contract over six years. And at the time of that contract, Lyman was the highest paid athlete at that time in Major League Baseball. After Lyman left the Twins and Larry left the Twins, the Twins organization was quite different in 1978, which was my last year as a bat boy with the Twins ball club. I followed Lyman's progress in California during the 78 season. Lyman started slow but picked up to his normal numbers mid-season and It was a sad day in September of 78 when I learned that Lyman Bostock was shot and killed in Gary, Indiana, September 23rd, 78. It was after a Chicago White Sox game that Lyman went with some friends to Gary, Indiana, and he was shot while riding in a car. I would like to just share his career stats in memory of Lyman Bostock. His career, 1975 through 1978, batting average 311, on-base percentage 0.365, 23 home runs, 102 doubles, 30 triples, 45 stolen bases, 250 RBIs and 526 games. One quick story about Lyman. It was while the Twins were playing the California Angels, and I was preparing the on-deck circle, watching Nolan Ryan warming up. Let me tell you, that guy can throw heat Just warming up, he was throwing balls over 100 miles an hour. And it was a close game with the Angels. And Lyman actually had a pretty good game that I remember. But Ryan was throwing smoke. He had struck out approximately 14 twins and was just hitting his groove as far as, as establishing his fastball and, and just dominating our hitters. And I remember kneeling in the on-deck circle with Lyman as he is prepping his bat with the pine tar rag and just kneeling next to me, getting ready for an at-bat and starting off a particular inning. And Lyman just looked at me and said, man, this guy's throwing hard. This guy is tough today. And he said, hey, Keith, you want to go up and hit for me today? (laughs) And obviously he was kidding, but that was just an example of how Lyman Bostock was. Just asking me if I'd take his bat and go up and swing at a Nolan Ryan fastball. But uh, that was one time I I, I recall... um, enjoying his sense of humor. One other thing, Lyman Bostock did approach my brother and I and inquired about obtaining a jersey for himself because he said that Calvin Griffith would not give him a jersey if he were to leave Minnesota. So there was a discussion about that and uh, Lyman was somewhat disgruntled with the twins and apparently some discussion about salary in 1977 and with that in mind um, it was after Lyman actually had been traded to the Angels um, that uh, an effort was made to arrange a meeting where Lyman would be able to get a jersey with his number 10 and uh, unfortunately that never happened. Um, however, I can say that Lyman is smiling somewhere now though knowing that his jersey's hanging somewhere in his memory in an undisclosed location in Minnesota. One final fun fact on this particular podcast. Both Larry Heisel and Lyman Bostock hit for the cycle. Larry hit, he was the 180th ball player that hit this hit for the cycle and he hit that cycle on June 4th, 1976 against Baltimore. And Lyman Bostock was the 182nd. Major League Baseball player that hit for the cycle. And he hit that on July 24, 1976 against the Chicago White Sox. So I thought that was an amazing statistic for two good friends that each met a monumental accomplishment in their profession of hitting for the cycle within one and a half months of each other. So, in closing, rest in peace, Lyman Bostock. You have been missed. And thank you, Mr. Larry Heisel, for being such a fine gentleman, good man to this bad boy. Thank you all for listening to the You Betcha podcast. Stay well until we meet again. And God bless the Republic.